Before we begin with our episode today, I have some sad news to pass along. For the past 10 years, you've heard the voice of Pete Combs hosting this weekly look at the latest developments in business aviation. That changed three months ago, as Dave Elliott and I have filled in for Pete as hosts of Flight Plan as he underwent treatment for a very aggressive form of cancer. I'm saddened to report today that Pete has lost that battle. He passed away December 12th at the age of 60. Pete was a longtime broadcast and print journalist, most recently for ABC Radio and AM750 WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. He was also a formidable presence in the general aviation and business aviation community for more than two decades, including his work as a writer, producer, and on-air talent not only for NBAA, but also several industry news organizations. Pete was also a private pilot and a passionate advocate for flying safety. In addition to hosting Flight Plan, his voice was often heard throughout NBAA events, including ahead of keynote presentations at NBAA base and other association gatherings. In early December, NBAA bestowed its prestigious Silk Scarf Award to Pete in recognition of his many contributions to the industry and to the association. On behalf of everyone at NBAA and all of us who worked with Pete over the years and who cherished his friendship, we extend our deepest condolences to his wife Karen and his family and friends who are all mourning his loss. Buddy, we're going to miss you. Business aviation companies often coordinate sales of parts and aircraft through third-party middlemen, a scenario that can be fraught with regulatory risk if your company isn't careful. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. This podcast is brought to you by Scudero, the software that elevates your flight operations. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. It's fair to say that hundreds, if not thousands, of sales transactions take place every day within our industry, from entire aircraft down to the engines, avionics, and other components that keep them flying. It's also a reality that many of these business dealings are coordinated through a third party, meaning the company selling those parts or aircraft may not be aware of who the ultimate end user is going to be. That could also mean someone ends up with those items who isn't legally permitted to have them. Particularly when speaking of international transactions or domestic transactions involving foreign beneficial owners, it's important that companies properly vet these transactions to avoid bad actors. But how can companies accomplish this, and what are the risks if such due diligence isn't performed? Joining us today are David Hernandez, a member of the Global Transportation Finance Team at Better Price. Laura Martino, Associate General Counsel for Compliance and Privacy at Global Jet Capital, and Jonathan Epstein, an international trade and aviation attorney and partner with the law firm of Holland and Knight. Jonathan, I can see how not knowing who the ultimate beneficial owner of an aircraft or component being sold could pose significant problems for the selling company. But how often do these bad actors pop up and bring down the wrath of regulators on companies that didn't perform their due diligence on those transactions? Good question. I think the issue is a risk-based one. So if you're selling you know, parts domestically, uh, the, the risk that you're going to end up dealing with a bad actor is much less is, is if you're engaged in an international transaction or where there's a the, the buyer is somebody shady. I mean, some of the some of the cases in uh, business aviation have included, uh, you know, drug smugglers who would set up a limited liability company, 
They have funding coming in from various sources. Similarly, we have seen a couple of instances where uh, on both the buy and sell side, where you have uh, like a Russian oligarch, somebody who's on one of the blacklists who indirectly owns or has some ownership interest in an aircraft, either trying to buy or sell. And that's where it's really important to have uh, adequate diligence. The U.S. government uh, has is vigorously enforcing in this area, and they have um, what I would call 2020 hindsight. I understand your firm has an example of this very situation. We were involved in a case, uh, this is many years ago, where there was an, an aircraft engine that was sold abroad by a U.S. seller, and it turned out this engine ended up in Iran. And during the investigation, there was one email where somebody had said, well, why is there a uh, uh, why is there an Iranian bank issuing a letter of credit in this deal? And, And nobody picked up on it in the course of the transaction. But you can bet from the regulators point of view, that was the smoking gun that our client had uh, intentionally engaged in this transaction when, in fact, you know, nobody they just didn't have procedures for spotting and and uh, uh, addressing these sort of things. Laura, given the risks involved, I'd imagine there are several regulations aimed at preventing such situations from occurring, right? In addition to what Jonathan um, addressed, which is really economic sanctions, which prohibit imports from exports to or financial transactions with countries or individuals that are identified as specially designated nationals or prohibited. There are certainly other regulatory regimes to take note of. For instance, the anti-bribery laws and regulations such as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the UK Bribery Act, which was enacted in 2010, went into force in 2011, which prohibits offering anything of value in exchange for a business advantage with the corrupt intent. And uh, in addition to anti-bribery laws and regulations, we also need to be mindful of our anti-money laundering laws and regulations. And these regulations do certainly apply to targeted industries such as covered financial institutions, but they indeed also apply broadly. And in fact, there's a uh, very broad criminal statute that went into effect in 1986, the Money Laundering Control Act, which essentially prohibits a company from accepting funds that were derived from ill-gotten gains even if the company is not actually involved in the predicate act. So these are certainly key uh, laws to think about when we consider how to mitigate these risks. And I would just close it out by saying that the biggest risks, right, that companies face are risks posed by doing business with blacklisted or restricted persons in violation of sanctions regimes, risks that are born out of uh, the use of third-party intermediaries, um, you know, such as when you use brokers or consultants in non-U.S. jurisdictions. Under the FCPA, there's a vicarious liability provision that essentially prohibits um, payments of in-kind directly or indirectly to foreign government officials, even if, if a company doesn't know that, in fact, these, these payments are being made uh, in the form of inducements and then um, risks posed by, um, again, accepting ill-gotten gains. So, David, how would you recommend companies go about performing this due diligence? And is that something a company should plan to take on for itself? I think to what extent an an entity wants to handle this this export control due diligence is entirely up to them. I mean, I have clients who do it themselves. Um, I have folks that outsource it. One, One thing to know, though, regardless if you outsource it or do it yourself, you are still required to have an export control compliance program. And so... That's key. So if you're in the import-export sphere, you do a lot of cross-border transactions, 
having a program in place is an absolute must. It's a regulatory requirement. So you've got to have some way to to monitor the process, control the process. And if you transact internationally, whether it's financial transactions, parts, aircraft parts, or aircraft themselves, you've got to have sufficient documentation in place to make sure that you have gone through at least the prima facie steps to identify and chase down any red flags. So where would you recommend a company begin in that process? First, obviously, is just checking the list. And I think you can hire folks to, who, who manage uh, commercial lists, or you can just start simply by going to the government's uh, cons- consolidated screening list and look at or just in, input the, the various parties' names to see if there's any hits, and you chase down the hits. But you know, certainly you can, any, anybody can do it. It's just a question of it requires a lot of effort and a lot of human resources to put a program in place we're talking a program typically 60, 70 pages at sometimes, and following the program. No program is good if it's not followed. Try to plan for the unexpected. And you do that through having a very robust and comprehensive compliance and enforcement program. Coming up, we'll examine the steps companies should take to identify the ultimate beneficiary of a business transaction and what the consequences can be if that process isn't followed. But first, a word from our sponsor, Scadero. Hi there, this is Justin from Scadero. Did you know Scadero now has an iOS app for pilots and crew members? The Scadero Crew app transforms how operators and flight departments share flight information by delivering everything pilots and crew members need for their missions direct to their phones. From notifications of assigned missions to passenger details and flight logs, pilots can now carry their full workflow in their pocket. Learn more today at Scadero.com. That's Scadero, S-C-H-E-D-A-E-R-O.com. We're back with David Hernandez, Jonathan Epstein, and Laura Martino in our discussion about weeding out bad actors in business aviation transactions. Laura, what are some red flags that companies should be mindful of when conducting an international sales transaction? The list is is numerous, right? And it's it's quite ex- expansive, for instance, in the context of economic sanctions, if you're having tremendous pushback with your customer and they, you know, you're explaining that, look, you're a covered financial institution, you are subject to the 2018, you know, uh, ultimate beneficial ownership requirement, and, and hence you need them to populate a form and attest to who their owners are. Uh, you know, any sort of pushback could be a red flag that they're really trying to disguise who their ultimate beneficial owners are. Um, and, and then, you know, through some desktop research, you discover, oh, wow, this entity is listed in the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers, um, you know, which is not um, outcome determinative, but it certainly does raise an out- eyebrow, particularly if your customer, you know, is pushing back and, and not providing that information. I, I do think that privacy is a concern and there's certainly legitimate reasons as to why, um, you know, privately held companies do wish to keep their ultimate beneficial ownership um, confidential. But when we're talking about a large financial transaction, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely paramount um, that, that you obtain that information. So David, what are the legal requirements in determining the ultimate beneficial owner and who will ultimately benefit from a given transaction? In the trust world, it's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting because you have uh, a lot of non-citizenship trusts up, set up to take advantage of being able to register an aircraft on the U.S. registry. And so you do that by setting up this trust structure. The problem is, is that uh, you have to make sure that the beneficial owners or the 
trustors keep you informed, the trust trustee of the operations. In fact, there's regulations, the regulations or guidance provides that you have to inform the FAA of who's actually operating the aircraft. But when you're talking about second and third parties, uh, it's very difficult to track this, but you have to do it through um, agreements. And that, that's the whole purpose of setting up these truck structures is to make sure that your agreements are strict enough that if there is any type of uh, activity, i.e., I mean, subleases, that they inform you of the subleases and you're well aware of who's actually operating the aircraft. And the key in this is who is ultimately the end user in these type of arrangements. Jonathan, you have something to add on that as well. It is a good question. And the, the, the regulatory issue is, is, I would put it as follows, is um, if, you're, if you're a bank or financial institution, you have a requirement to uh, look at as of May of 2018 to, to do beneficial owner um, uh, due diligence for your customers. But for everyone else out there, the issue is as follows. You can't do business with these blocked entities. Well, you also can't do business with anyone that is 50% or more otherwise owned or controlled by a blocked entity like an SDN. And so that's why it's really important, particularly, uh, and obviously you can't do this sort of ultimate beneficial ownership in every, you know, if you're just selling, uh, you know, tires in, in domestically, but when you're entering into a long-term relationship or you're selling a major piece of hardware into Russia or, or China somewhere, it's important to, um, to, to try and, and get that information. And we're seeing certainly the financial institutions doing that for, for transactions. In fact, I believe we've seen a marked increase lately in the number of enforcement actions on this issue. Right, Laura? I would say that recent years have certainly been marked by a sharp increase in the number of enforcement actions. And we've seen that penalties have hit record highs. Several decades ago, you didn't see a whole lot in the space of, of um, FCPA enforcement, um, and recent years have really changed that. Um, you're also seeing an expanded scope of which industry sectors are being targeted. I would say historically, you, you would see more, you know, medical device manufacturers, pharmaceuticals, and and now you're seeing more, you know, financial institutions, insurance companies um, being looked at for violating, uh, you know, anti-bribery statutory schemes such as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, with, of course, the series fraud office in the UK also enforcing their anti-bribery regime more rig- with more rigor uh, and frequency. So um, I would say, in addition to that, you're seeing a lot more intra-agency cooperation. So you're having, in the course of an FCPA investigation, the SEC will tip off OFAC and say, hey, you know, look, we're, we're seeing some uh, sanctions violations here. Um, so you're seeing these agencies kind of piggyback on each other's investigation, and you're seeing companies being investigated on several fronts, um, I would also say that in addition to intra-agency cooperation, I think that many would agree that there is unprecedented international cooperation. And when a company settles with the U.S. government for underlying violations of the the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that will not preclude a foreign government or a non-U.S. government from bringing a similar action under their anti-bribery law for the same exact conduct. So we are seeing, to that extent, we're seeing a lot more cooperation with the U.S. government cooperating with foreign governments. So those are some of the trends that we're seeing. I was just going to add, increasingly, the the banks and financial institutions have been, not only have they been penalized, but they've been sort of deputized to police transactions. So we are certainly seeing, um, you know, for example, uh, financial institutions and and uh, some aircraft leasing companies 
you know, actively reviewing flight records to see where aircraft are flying, doing, you know, enhanced diligence. And, and there is a negative element, which it cuts both ways, but is that for a, a bank may refuse to process a transaction that is otherwise lawful because of their you know, general concern or it's, it's not worth their while to handle the transaction. And, and I'll give you a good example is, is that you know, today, I'm sure there's several flights by US airlines to Cuba that are perfectly lawful, that are authorized by the Department of Transportation and Department of Commerce, Department of Treasury, but there's only one or two banks in the United States that will handle those transactions merely because from a bank's perspective, they don't want to take the risk of having to deal with the additional cost of compliance. So that you know, creates its own set of issues. I would just add that, that certainly the banking industry and OFAC consider aviation and shipping as high risk, I think primarily because our stuff moves around the world, right? You know, aircraft fly to every country in the world, ships go to every country in the world, and so that creates uh, additional uh, a risk profile. We don't have to look very far back for an example highlighting these concerns. In early 2019, a Florida-based aviation company faced a $3 million fine from the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control after leasing three engines to an entity in the United Arab Emirates. That party, in turn, subleased those engines to a Ukrainian airline, which then installed them on an aircraft flown by Sudan Air, which at the time was on OFAC's list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons. That company ultimately settled the case for a bit more than $210,000. This can clearly be a significant and expensive problem for business aviation companies, and NBAA's Regulatory Issues Advisory Group has published a free webinar detailing steps to avoid such situations and to keep from running afoul of OFAC and other regulatory agencies. To access this webinar, visit nbaa.org forward slash customers. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan podcasts at Apple's iTunes website, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock, and thanks for listening to Flight Plan.